You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I look back through Christian history, I see story after story after story of men and women that struggled and yet persevered. Some read Christian history to be inspired by stories of greatness. So-and-so started this many orphanages, or so-and-so preached the gospel in X amount of countries, and so on. And, And these are inspiring testimonies of what God can and continues to do. But the stories from history, and specifically Christian history, that I'm drawn to personally are stories of struggle. Men and women who faced significant challenges from without and from within. Men and women that struggled with depression and pressed on. Those who struggled with relational conflict and pressed on. Those who struggled with persecution and poverty and obstacles and yet by God's grace, they pressed on. Now, you can call it misery loves company if you want. But you have to admit there's something something deeply comforting to know that we are not alone in the struggle. That you and I are not the first to struggle in our faith. That you and I are not the first to struggle to persevere in Christ and nor will we be the last. This morning's title of this message is very simple. It's the struggle is real. Amen? Struggle is real. Now, I haven't lived long, but I think I've lived long enough to be able to determine that there are two kinds of Christians. There are those who struggle, and there are those who pretend that they don't. (laughs) To believe is to struggle. And Paul emphasizes that here and, and elsewhere in places like Galatians 5. To follow Jesus is to enlist in a lifelong conflict. When the life-giving, transforming presence of the Holy Spirit enters into our lives, 
a new kind of war within begins. And this inner struggle is not a sign of defeat, hear me. Struggle is not a sign that you are backsliding. Struggle is not a sign that God has forsaken you. Struggle is not a sign that you are doing it wrong. Struggle is the necessary proof that resurrection life has been unleashed within you. Where Jesus' life is now powerfully overturning the effects of death within, which, by the way, is not going to be a comfortable process. So for those who resent struggle, for those who look at their lives and resent the, the process that they are going through in order to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, for those who think that they are alone, or for those that think they are somehow an anomaly in this equation as those who struggle, let me remind you of something here. I actually looked up the antonyms of struggle, the opposite words of struggle, and this is what I found. The opposite of struggle is idleness. The opposite of struggle is retreat. The opposite of struggle is giving up. So what that means is that for the Christian, there are two paths before you. The path of struggle or the path of retreat. Now, over the years, you've heard me talk a lot about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. That the way of Jesus transforms things like suffering into glory, defeat into victory, rejection into fellowship, and even death into life. And today, what I want us to do is to imagine together what if the way of Jesus transformed our experience of things like frustration, and tension, and inner conflict. What if these were not things that brought us down or opposed our growth, but were actually the very way that we grow and are shaped for the better? What if struggling is prevailing? What if fighting to press on is the victory? I believe that it is especially in light of the fact that for the believer, at least, we already stand in the victory of Jesus' death and resurrection. The outcome is sure. And I'm going to be far more inclined to put up one hell of a fight if I know that just in a few rounds the bell is going to ring and the outcome has already been determined. Now, the specific struggle that Paul is referring to here is a very timeless one, and I believe that it is a struggle that every single person here, man, woman, or child, can relate to in some way. And here it is. It's very human. It's very basic. It's the desire to do good and that helpless feeling of not being able to. The desire to do good and then realizing I just don't have it takes. In Ovid's uh, you know, famous piece of Roman literature called Metamorphosis, there's the story of Medea or Medea or however you want to pronounce her name. And she's torn between two paths. One is to remain loyal to her father, the king. And the other path is to betray her father and to help this like 
scumbag guy named Jason in helping, in helping him find and discover and achieve getting this golden fleece. And the reader is brought into her inner monologue as she begins to identify the two competing sides of this conflict that she's experiencing. On one side, you have her desire to do the right thing, the thing that she knows to be best in this situation. And on the other side is her romantic passion that is urging her against all knowledge to help Jason. And she makes this really famous statement. She says, clearly, I clearly know what the better way is, and I know what is right, but I will follow the worst way. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going a different direction. Who cannot associate and relate to that experience? I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going a different way. Now, back here in Romans, Paul is writing to a Roman audience, very likely alluding to this statement found in famous Roman literature written within 100 years before Paul's letter. And he says things like this. Look at me again in verses 18 and 19. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is perhaps some of the most honest self-disclosure that we have from the Apostle Paul. This is insight into the inner struggle of the most famous apostle. And as Paul welcomes us in behind the curtain, so to speak, we see not only his experience, but I think what we see here is our own experience as well. I think Romans 7 strikes a chord with us because it puts language to something that we all are frustrated with and experience in our daily life. And when we look, when we see behind the curtain into Paul's and our experience, there are really three things that we see here. We see a divided self, a troubled soul, and a hopeful song. Let's look first at a divided self. Look at me again in verses 14 and 15. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Now pause. Self-knowledge begins with being humble enough to recognize that we are a confusing bundle of contradictions. You are beginning to understand yourself when you recognize that you do not understand yourself. If you're ever just like, gosh, I just don't get it. I don't get why I do the things I do. Number one, welcome to the club. You're in good company. And number two, you're on the right track. In fact, I would say beware of those with their smug certainty that they have themselves and others figured out. No, they don't. They're lying to themselves because even the Apostle Paul says, I don't get it. Let's keep looking. Verse 15. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Now there's been a lot of debate about what exactly Paul is talking about here. Is he talking about the past experience before he was a Christian? Is he talking about his present experience as a believer, which I believe that he is? Others think, oh, no, 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 Paul's not even talking about himself. He's just talking about humanity as a whole. Now, we could get lost in the weeds here, but that's not my intention today, nor do I believe it was Paul's. There's a lot that we may not be able to understand about this passage, but I think that there are two things that are crucial for, under, for us to understand about ourselves. Two very important things to grasp in understanding who we are. And it's that we, as the reformers described it, are simultaneously justified and, and sinful at the same time. Uh, in the Latin, it was simul justus et peccator. At one time, justified and sinful. In the life of faith, between trusting in Jesus Christ and finally being at home with him in glory, in the already but not yet of the Christian experience that describes what we experience today, we are at the same time completely justified by faith. For the believer, as he looks at you, there is no waiting for him to make up his mind about you. Nothing is hanging in the balance. There is no bracing for judgment day. God has made up his mind about you, justified through faith. And yet, we're wholly sinful in our nature and our will. For the Christian, forgiveness and freedom and life belongs to you today. You're not waiting for some future experience of Jesus so that you can be forgiven. You are forgiven today. And yet, what is the call of the Christian? To repent daily. The whole of the Christian life is, is one of repentance. You have been delivered from the power and the penalty of sin, and yet you have not yet been fully delivered from the presence of sin. The Spirit dwells within you, but so does sin. And so this explains the tension that we experience. This explains why we just feel torn all the time. It's this division. There's a conflict between two natures. And, and Paul describes it in very interesting terms. He describes it in terms of these two me's. Hello, me. It's me again. Two of you Megadeth fans got that one. Okay. I saw a raised hand in the back. <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, there's the old self and the new self. There's the inner, I'm just going to keep teasing this out here. There's the innermost me, the inner being that's renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. And then there's the flesh. Now, Paul is not talking about skin and bones and body being, being bad. What he's talking about when he talks about flesh is the fallen nature of our humanity that has been weakened and incapacitated because of sin. There's the new me defined by Jesus Christ and his righteousness, and then there's the old me that's defined by sin and death. I am divided, and yet the good news is that I am not defeated. 
And while there is still lingering sin from the old me still present, you're lying to yourself if you say that there's not. What Paul identifies here is that that sin doesn't define me anymore. He says it's, it's no longer I who do it. In other words, this is no longer who I am. And so the real struggle of faith, here it is, the real day-to-day thing that we need to press into as believers is that moment-by-moment decision of who we're going to align with. Am I going to, going to align with the, the false dying me? Or am I going to align with the true me that's going to live with God forever? Which me am I going with? Which me am I investing in? Which me am I living into? Divided self. Now let's look secondly at a troubled soul. A troubled soul. Um, About a decade ago, Michelle and I, we bought this Alfred Hitchcock box set, you know, classic psychological thrillers. And one of his best-known films is the movie Vertigo, where Jimmy Stewart's character is following this woman named Madeline, and she believes that she is her grandmother. She's like channeling the inner spirit of her grandmother. And because her grandmother died tragically at the age of like 26 or something like that, she believes that she has to die at the age of 26 as well. And so she's on this path of self-destruction. And there's this scene where she's racing up the stairs of a church bell tower to cast herself off. And Jimmy Stewart's character is following her to stop her. And as he gets near the top, he looks over the rail and he stops. And you've probably seen this scene, at least part of it, where the ground begins to swell, almost like it's, it's drawing him in. And what this film captures in, you know, cutting-edge 1950s cinematography is what is called the call of the void. Where we experience these troubling thoughts and we feel pulled towards danger. Now, the, the interesting thing about this part of the, the story is that this guy is actually there to save Madeline's life, and yet he experiences this strange, instinctual pull to give in himself. And in that moment, he desires to do the right thing. He's climbing these stairs to do the right thing, but he's debilitated by the wrong thing. And one thinker from the last century described this call of the void as an unnerving, shaky sensation of not being able to trust one's own instincts. It's that disorienting moment where we realize, I don't know if I can trust what my gut is telling me. You and I, from a very early age, have been told explicitly to trust our instincts. We tell people, hey, just go with your gut. Follow your longings, following your desires. In fact, today, probably the only thing that's considered a non-negotiable in this world is our own instincts, what our own inner voice is telling us. But I'm going to ask a very blunt question to you today. Who among us 
is both mentally and emotionally stable and healthy and sound enough to say that I can trust my instincts 100% of the time. Who can say that I have never led myself astray and that inner voice has been trustworthy throughout my whole life? Remember, Paul doesn't even trust himself. That's a bold statement, by the way. If you can say that you trust yourself in a way where even the Apostle Paul himself, who was met by the very resurrected Jesus himself, in a way that he wasn't able to describe himself. The Bible shows us that this is not the way that we are to navigate through life. In fact, following our instincts can actually be very destructive and a very destructive way to walk through life, especially if we have instincts that are pulled towards self-harm. Especially if we have tendencies that are self-destructive. Or especially if we have inordinate desires that sound good for me but are at the expense of other people. You ever thought about the fact that when we follow our desires, it may actually conflict with the safety and the consent and the dignity of the people around us? So what happens in that gridlock when I'm saying, I'm following my own heart, and the person next to you says, as you follow your heart, you're destroying my life. Your soul, your, your inner person, is more troubled and more conflicted than you could ever imagine. And therefore, less trustworthy than you've actually given it credit. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't just leave us here at the void. He doesn't just say, you are whack and you shouldn't follow your own inner voice. All right, peace out. I'll see you in chapter 8. He doesn't just leave us there with the void. He turns our attention to God's word that doesn't waver and can be trusted. So as you experience your own little existential angst right now and that unnerving, disorienting feeling of like, oh my gosh, I can't trust myself. What do I do? Here's the answer. We can always trust God's word. Where can I find certainty? The voice of the Spirit. Look at me in verse 21 and 22. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my own inner being. This, by the way, is the reason that I think that Paul is talking about the Christian experience, because think about it. Who delights in the law of God apart from God's saving grace? Apart from his work within me, I want to resist everything that God says. I hate the things he says are good, and I like the things he says are not good. Going on, verse 23. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Now, in the ancient world, they describe this sort of inner conflict that Paul is describing here with a word picture of a 
horse and a rider. And the rider represents reason. And the horse represents passion. The horse and the rider. And so the Stoics and other ancient philosophers believed that the goal of life is to bridle your passions, to bridle your desires, and to subdue them completely. To overcome the urges of the body by the intellect of the mind. That's where we get the term mind over body or mind over matter. But I actually don't think that that's what Paul is getting at here. And I don't believe that that is God's goal for our life. I don't think God is saying here that mind is good and body is bad, icky. Or that reason, that's good, and passions, those are really bad. You should be suspicious of them. I think for some of us, we envision Christianity being like a young adult novel where everyone gets like an injection every day so that it numbs them and they robotically obey and do what they're supposed to do. All the passions are dead. All the feelings are gone. All those emotions and desires are dead so we can get back to doing the things that we need to do for God. And so the question for us is, that, is that the way that we are healed in our troubled, torn souls? Is that what God is looking to do here as he confronts us with this inner turmoil that we all experience? And I, don't think, the, I think the answer is no. See, freedom in Christ is not about repressing our desires. But at the same time, freedom in Christ is not about following our desires blindly. Freedom in Christ is about redirecting them to where ultimate satisfaction is found in Jesus. Christianity is about our passions and our desires actually being intensified, but for God, and intensified for his presence, and intensified for his word, as Jesus described, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, growing more and more uncontrollably passionate for Jesus. And so in our moment of feeling pulled, in our moment of being pulled in different directions and feeling pulled down that path that we know is the path that we should not go down, what we need to do is ask this question, what am I really desiring right now? What is the desire beneath the desire? What is the passion beneath the passion? And how may I discover that desire fully satisfied in Jesus, fully satisfied in him. I want to share a part of a poem that, that it's actually been kind of controversial through Christian history, and it goes like this. Batter my heart through person God for you, and yet but not breathe shine and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend. You're forced to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Take me to you. Imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chast, except you ravish me. We will remain captive to our emotions. We will remain captive to our urges and our desires until we are finally captivated by God. And, and really, 
until we discover how incomparably better he is, that there is more joy in him and more satisfaction and more fulfillment and pleasure and meaning and hope and life in him than anything else in all of this world. C.S. Lewis said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want most something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And then he made this famous statement, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, well then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Why do you and I, as believers, experience so much trouble in our souls? And I think part of the answer is that it's because we've forgotten that we are made for another world. We're, we're searching for a satisfaction that just can't be found apart from Jesus. Amen? Let's look finally at a hopeful song. Look at me in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And so the point of all these difficult words from Paul leading up to this point, talking about these very difficult topics like sin's dominion and our weakness and our frailty and our frustration of wanting to do the right thing but always falling short, I believe that it's intended to bring us to this very place, to this very statement, where you and I join with Paul in saying, wretched man that I am. Wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me now? In, in other words, how on earth can I rise above this just never-ending cycle of frustration in my life? And it's right there, at the very end of ourselves, where all of our self-confidence, where all of our self-esteem is finally and completely depleted. And we're finally ready to give up being our own deliverer. And we finally, by faith, look away from ourselves. And it's there in that place that we discover no sweeter sound than the song of the gospel. And it's here that Paul concludes by, quite literally, breaking out in song. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How can we be delivered? How can you and I be drawn out of this endless cycle of defeat in our lives? And Paul's answer is this. It's through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, a new way of life breaks open for us. As we look to the life of Jesus, we see the law of God perfectly fulfilled for us. As we look to Jesus' anguish in the garden where he quite literally said, my soul is troubled. We see Jesus entering into the frustration and the pain of our experience. 
As we look to the cross, we see Jesus condemned in our place. As we look to the empty tomb, we see the hope of overcoming defeat. And as we, the church, this week, this very Thursday, pause to remember the ascension of Jesus Christ, we are given the confidence that our Savior is on the throne. And when things in our lives, like right now I'm sure for you, feel so out of control, they are not outside of his control. And when we feel defeated and we feel like giving up, we're reminded that Jesus is seated in victory, not just for himself, but for our victory. Friend, the struggle is real. And this is experienced by every, every person, suffering, trial, frustration, young, old, man, woman, child, believer, non-believer. It's, it's real. But what makes you and I reality distinct is our hopeful song in the midst of the struggle. As we lift up our hopeful song, what we do is we stir anticipation for Christ's return. As we lift up our hopeful song in the midst of the struggle, what we're doing is we're anchoring our hearts to the very day where Christ will return, and once and for all, we will be delivered from the turmoil and the pain and the tears and the frustration and the futility of human life. And so in the meantime, as Paul instructed us earlier in Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our struggle, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Our song is not ignoring the struggle. It's the way that we make sure that the struggle is working for us. It's the way that we make sure that struggle is in our corner and is working for us in our process of sanctification and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this.